Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And, as we know, Sherry Edwards is off working on the Sound Health Portal. If you'd like to find out more info about the Sound Health Portal, you can go to soundhealthportal.com. Scroll down to see the current campaigns. Campaigns are uh, vocal prints that you can have done for free. And I reviewed it before we started. And some of the current ones are BioDiet, Corona Conflict. This could be handy. Fibromyalgia, PTSD, and there's some others. And if you scroll down a bit further, then you'll see how to get a free report. You sign up for a free membership. Choose the campaign that you're interested in, any of the above. And the prompts will guide you through recording two 30 to 40 second recordings directly from your computer. Easy to do. I will put a note in here saying that it works much better if you have something, a simple microphone like the Samsung Go mic, which is available right there on the portal. The Samsung Go mic is really handy as well, since everybody in the world were all Zooming or webinaring or web jamming or webby somethinging. The Samsung Go mic is a really handy mic that can clip to the top of your monitor, the bottom of your monitor, or top of your laptop. And it just really improves the audio quality, and it works great for doing vocal profiling because it's a handy, easily carryable, with-you-at-all-times microphone. Durable. And you just plug that in, and it just really improves the intake of your voice for the vocal print. And it's handy. You can also go to soundhealthoptions.com and see demos by Sherry demonstrating the Sound Health portal. And you can scroll down to, you click on classes, and then you scroll down to portal presentations, and there'll be some of the current presentations there showing her doing a workup, a live workup with people to see what the current, you know, things that are possibly going on. I don't know what the current demonstrations are, but there's always new demonstrations of what's happening at the portal and it's always improving that's why sherry's always working on it it's always getting a little bit better and for those that are new to the sound health portal it allows you to go there as i say you go through these steps you'll be able to do the recordings and you'll back, get back a report an emailed report within a couple of hours usually i find it the most and you will see a lot of information showing things that are out of balance, meaning too high, too low, too something, not enough. And it just gives you a really amazing amount of information to sit down and have a cup of tea and review and or take to your healthcare practitioner and talk about further. To hear a replay of today's show, which is going to be another great show with Dr. Stephanie Seneff, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, then click on Sound Health Radio. And there at the top of that page will be today's flyer for the show and a link back to the website with the show notes. And or you can also go to the top and you can click on, uh, we've now added a clickable link for either Stitcher or Pocket Casts. Pocket Cast is my preference. It's a very powerful podcast aggregator, which is just fancy speak for a way of gathering your things that you listen to into one location. And it's a free sign-up. And you can go there, and you can click on the link and see this show will be there within about a half an hour, typically. And then a list of, I think, on Pocket Cast or Stitcher, you can find five or 600 shows. 
there are more than that, but I think that's about that's all they list. And you'll be able to, one of the reasons I like Pocket Cast is because it's really easy to share the show uh, somewhere along, uh, depending upon what form you're on, whether you're on your computer. It's cross-platform. It works on iOS or Android or on your laptop or on your Chromebook or on your Linux machine for those of us that do that sort of thing. And you can click on the dots and be able to just share the show either from a particular point in the show or just the entire show completely. And this is a show. This is a show. I can already, I already know just from brief amount of talking with Dr. Sinef backstage that you're going to want to hear again and or share with others. We're going to, it's lively. With that, Dr. Stephanie Seneff is a senior research scientist at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has a BS degree from MIT in biology and a PhD from MIT in electrical engineering and computer science. Her recent interests have focused on the role of toxic chemicals and micronutrient deficiencies in health and diseases, with a special emphasis on the pervasive herbicide Roundup and the mineral sulfur. Since 2011, she has published over two dozen papers in various medical and health-related journals on topics such as modern-day diseases, that is, Alzheimer's, autism, cardiovascular diseases, analysis and search of databases of drug side effects using NLP techniques and the effect of nutritional deficiencies and environmental toxins on human health. Today, Dr. Seneff joins us to discuss glyphosate, as an X factor in pandemic vulnerability. Welcome, Dr. Seneff. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. All right, I'll take a deep breath. We've already, I already got worked up talking backstage. Today, I never thought these two would come together. You're gonna, we're going to talk about two of my favorite, that's a large air quotes when I say favorite, search terms, glyphosate and covid Right. <laughs> Would you tell us about the journey of how we got here? I mean, glyphosate, okay, I've, we've talked a lot about that, and I'm still in a bad mood about it. But now we're, we're taking that and combining it and making a cocktail and enhancing, or whatever, whatever word I might use, we're adding COVID to that. Would you talk about the journey about how you got here? Uh, yeah, it's quite fascinating, and I uh, have to admit that I had to learn a lot about biofuels in the process because I didn't know a whole lot about them. I was aware of ethanol, bioethanol, which is in our gasoline now pretty much across the country. The United States is a leader in that space. And then, um, But then it turns out there's lots of other biofuels as well, uh, biodiesel, um, biogas. There's uh, aviation biofuel for the airplanes. There's home heating oil that's got a biofuel component. So they're putting this stuff in all kinds of places, and it's an industry that's ramping up dramatically in the last few years. And there are a, uh, a few leaders in the world in that industry, and you can pretty much line them up and see that they're the ones who are being killed by COVID-19. So it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. It's a combination, I think, of biofuels and glyphosate, that what's happening is that we're now getting significant amounts of glyphosate in the air, in air pollution in the places where biofuels are heavily used. And that glyphosate is being breathed in and the lungs are reacting to it by getting their immune system wrecked, basically. So their immune cells 
lose their capacity to clear the virus. You breathe in the virus and it has a field day. And then, so anybody who's been exposed to glyphosate is much more contagious than somebody who has not. And this is how you see then the way things line up in countries around the world. If you look at the world map and where are the uh, epidemics, Brazil, United States, all of most of Europe, um, South Africa, in Africa, you know, South Africa stands out. It's the one that has used the most glyphosate of any, by far of any of the countries in Africa. So you sort of COVID follows glyphosate around. And we see also that there are all these comorbidities. You see that very obese people are very susceptible. Even young people who are very overweight are dying from glyphosate, from COVID-19, sorry. And um, obesity, diabetes, you know, heart conditions, lung problems, even Alzheimer's, those are all risk factors for bad outcome if you catch COVID. And glyphosate is strongly correlated with a rise in all of those diseases, extremely strong correlations. This is something that Nancy Swanson figured out quite a while ago and published an incredible paper with colleagues about uh, showing the strong, strong correlations between the rise over time in things like diabetes and obesity, autism, Alzheimer's, and in various cancers as well. And cancer is also a risk factor for a bad outcome with COVID-19. So all of these chronic diseases that are risk factors are being caused the glyphosate is a major causal component of those diseases. And so basically, if you've been exposed to glyphosate, and particularly if you've been exposed through breathing it, watch out. you got to stay away from COVID. And how does the – I wasn't going to, but I, I've heard you – we're going to jump to talk, sort of combining this with talking about Wuhan. I'm going to back into everything else now because I can't help but ask about this now. Because you've talked about one of the – read or talked as we talked backstage I, by the time I get here I've read and heard so much I can't remember where what's from where but I have heard you speak about or whatever Wuhan's outbreak possibly being so bad because they're the country that manufactures most of the glyphosate and and yeah. talk about that whole vortex of right bad words. And, uh- I've had a hard time getting information about Wuhan, but the information I've gotten is sort of a smoking gun. So um, my husband actually visited. He goes to China, and he they proudly showed him these massive fields of canola, very beautiful uh, blooming canola all along the, riv- the banks of the Yangtze River. And um, the uh, – not the Yangtze, uh, shoot, is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's right, the Yangtze River. Um, and uh, they – there's a, there was a glyphosate plant uh, that was on the banks of that river. And uh, I found a, um, an article that talked about moving that plant because it was too toxic for the water. They were going to move it. And that article was some time ago, so I don't know whether they actually succeeded in moving it, but there was an intention to do that. And uh, I read something that um, claimed that it's really good to use glyphosate on canola right before you harvest it. Uh, if you're going to use it as a biofuel, and that's and that's what they were using this canola as, they were using it as a biofuel, and was and of course the the river goes right through um, Wuhan, it, it cuts right through it. So you can piece all those p- puzzle pieces together, and, and you can suspect. And I have unfortunately not been able to prove that from what I've been able to find on the web that Wuhan is is uh, burning is using biofuel derived from canola that's being sprayed with glyphosate right before harvest. So I haven't proven it, but that. It all looks plausible, given all those facts that I just gave you. Well, and couldn't it also be exacerbated because I believe that China has, I mean, we've seen because of the pandemic, when industry stopped for a while, we saw pollutions go, levels go way down. 
pollution goes down and then and then ooh, and then the COVID goes down. It's very interesting, right? Yeah. You, you basically stop driving and then the air gets clean and then the COVID goes away. And I think it's actually very immediate. If you've been had you know significant glyphosate exposure over the past couple of weeks and now you get COVID, your lungs are really hurting and they're having a hard time coping. But if you let them breathe well for two weeks, much better situation, I suspect, you know. Wow. And biofuels, talk a bit more about biofuels because I used to be a fan of uh, biofuels in terms of diesel fuel as an alternative form of energy. I know people that would drive what were called grease cars where they would have a gas tank to start the engine and then they'd flip it over to burning a biofuel or to burning actual, in those, the grease cars were actually burning oil, not, not, not out of the ground oil, but recycled French fry oil, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. That's an, so that in turn is aerosolizing. Well, yeah, so Europe is, uh, has uh, played a leadership role in using used cooking oil, um, recycling used cooking oil from the restaurants and turning that into biodiesel fuel. Um, yeah, there's the biodiesel, there's the bioethanol, um, as I mentioned before, which in our country comes from corn. In Brazil, it comes from sugarcane. Sugarcane is often sprayed with glyphosate right before harvest. Corn is a GMO Roundup Ready crop. Uh, we get all kinds of Bio, biodiesel can come from all kinds of places, and, and one of them is the residue of crops after the harvest. So basically wheat, for example, is sprayed with glyphosate as a desiccant right before harvest, and then it's harvested, and then the leftover stuff, the stubble, you know, the, the stalks, are, are gathered up and thrown onto a barge and taken down to New York City and sent to a factory that turns them into biodiesel fuel. And New York City has been a leader. You know, New Orleans and New York City were kind of the major leaders in the advancement of this concept of turning um, waste crops into biodiesel fuel. And that's, you know, really feel good concept, right? Because you're, you don't want to be using uh, diesel fuel. You want to try to, you know, use as little oil as you can, petroleum. Um, and so if you can turn immediately um, crop uh, raw materials into, into a, a usable diesel fuel, that seems like a good thing. And it, I think it even probably would be a good thing if you weren't poisoning your crop first. But if you're going to put poison in your crop, turn it into fuel, and then, and then the plant itself is probably, you know, leaking glyphosate. It's probably leaking at the gas tank when people fill the, the, the car with fuel. It's possibly leaking from engines that are poorly tuned. You know, you see these poorly tuned old buses spewing out fumes. They've got organic matter in them. It's not guaranteed that glyphosate is going to get destroyed. Combustion would destroy it. It's certainly a high enough temperature to destroy glyphosate, but it doesn't necessarily make it to combustion before it gets leaked out, is what I'm thinking is happening. So I don't know exactly where the, the glyphosate is coming from uh, in the cities, but I do believe that it is in the air in the cities. It's certainly showing up in water. And actually, Anthony Sampson had me send a couple samples of water, one from my home in Winchester, Massachusetts, and one at MIT in Cambridge, and my Winchester sample tested negative for glyphosate, rainwater, this was rainwater, and my mm. Cambridge tested positive, and it's possible the rainwater is picking it up as it comes down through the air that's got the glyphosate in it, I don't know, you know, it's very hard to know where, how to trace where glyphosate has gone to finally end up somewhere, but it's very interesting with the pollution because there's been now four studies, I'm aware of at least four studies that have come out, three from Europe, um, there's one from the UK, there's one from Italy, there's one from many uh, authors in Europe, and there's one from the United States. An excellent one, Harvard University did a study, and they looked at the, uh, you could get information at, count, at the county level in the United States on the particle 
you know, the, the, the nanoparticles in the um, air pollution uh, at, at the county level. And they correlated that with the number of deaths from COVID-19 found a very strong correlation. So increased air pollution means increased risk. People have argued that the virus actually gets trapped in those particles and uh, survives longer in the air because of that. And that's also a possibility. So there's other reasons why there's other things in the, in, in the air pollution, of course, that are also toxic, like the nitric oxide is not good. There's sulfur oxides that are bad. There's even, um, uh, let's see, I think it's uh Cyanide, uh, that's something that uh, uh, Zach Bush has talked about, cyanide in the air, which he thinks is a possibility because he, he feels that the symptoms look like cyanide poisoning. That's quite interesting to me. I actually found that cyanide, there's a new way they do the engine now um, that they've ramped up tremendously over the last couple of decades in the car that apparently greatly increases the contamination of cyanide in the, in the fumes from the car. So you've got all those things in play as well. And then there's a question of whether glyphosate is an add-on there that's making a huge difference. And one of the reasons why I think it is is because you have all these papers from Europe and the United States talking about air pollution being correlated. And then you look at Nigeria. Nigeria is arguably the most polluted country in the, in the world. They have the city, I have it written down here, um, Onitsha, O-N-I-T-S-H-A, not a city that I'm familiar with. Apparently, it's the number one most polluted city in the world in Nigeria. Wow. And they've got like four or five of the top cities and that 94% of their people are being exposed to air that's uh, particle levels above the WHO recommended upper limit. So they, they're like super, super uh, exposed to bad air. And then you look at their COVID-19 and it's ridiculous. They're like, it's not happening. You know, they've got one one hundredth of the death rate per population compared to the United States, one one hundredth, one percent from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So it's very bizarre. Here they are with enormous air pollution and no problem with COVID-19. They don't use much glyphosate. I've actually written a paper on glyphosate in Africa. South Africa uses by far the most and has by far the worst epidemic. So, you know, it's the ducks are lining up. And they're quacking loudly and flapping their wings. <laughs> and so I know farmers that gather, uh, for instance, we have a dairy farm. I hope that it's still here. I'm in the part of California that's burning. Mm-hmm. And for years they have, well, actually just in the past three to five years, they've started gathering, their, their cows are all pastured. They, they're never in a barn. Well, maybe they sleep in a barn at night, but for the most part, they're, they're growing, they're grass fed, grass finished cows. And these are their dairy cows. And then there's another group called Temple Farms, which is the same thing. Their cows are for beef, uh, but they're also pasture fed, pasture raised, always on grass. But they have started gathering uh, the byproduct of the cows, the waste, and creating methane out of that. But it doesn't have glyphosate. I mean, except mm. for the ambient, the ambient potential glyphosate just from other crops in the area. But these mm-hmm. are large, vast areas of pasture because I drive by them. And they're on the coast of California. So they don't have much ag in that area of California. So it's possible that they're actually producing clean biofuel. Right. Because they then take that methane and use it to run their processing plants. That's very, to, very interesting you know, because you're giving me a setup for what's going on with other places, meat processing plants, you know? Right. It's because the they're actually... Gas. Go ahead. Yeah, um, uh, it's, it's fascinating because I've been looking at all the meat processing plants, not just in the U.S., but also in the U.K. and Germany. They're getting hit so hard. Sometimes, sometimes everybody is, it comes out positive with COVID-19. Everybody works at the plant. And... Um, 
and those plants are often hooked up to something that's using the waste from the meat processing and turning it into biogas, which is then being used to fuel the plant. So that's a perfect setup because biogas, you know, is extremely volatile. I can't imagine glyphosate's not leaking. If it's in there, it's going to leak out, especially if you've got leaky pipes, which you usually do in old cities, you know, like, like Boston and New York City have a lot of problems with leaky gas pipes underneath the city. And New York City has this huge plant that is the New York sewer system and that processes the New York, New York sewer and throws in a bunch of stuff from, from um, it's, it, they are boasting about how advanced they are with their biodigesters. They have these anaerobic digester eggs that are quite splendid to look at and, and that convert all this stuff uh, into biogas, which then there's so much made that they have more than enough to fuel the plants and they, so they give some of it back to the city. So, you know, you think of pipes underneath, um, um, Brooklyn and uh, Queens, New York, which are the epicenter of the epicenter of the uh, epidemic, um, the pipes delivering gas to those places coming from the sewer system and leaking out the glyphosate. It makes sense to me, you know, that that's what's happening there. Yeah. Uh, back to the meat processing plants for a minute. So you're you're saying that they're using that biofuel to heat the plants, or to is that how they they're being Exposed whatever you need energy for in the plant. Okay. I'm not sure what it is. I should find out. <laughs> moving okay. the, you know, the moving the moving the thing. I don't know. Okay, because we were talking a little bit of, uh, before the show about ozone destroying or breaking down glyphosate. I have people, uh, friends in the ozone industry, and allies from back in my days when I was designing ozone primary water purification systems who are working on systems that they're working with currently in Europe that are basically large tubes that they put on the ceilings of factories that purify the air using ozone. Mm. And they have built-in self-monitoring systems so they never get to an elevated level for people in the room because ozone is not toxic, not directly toxic. It's an irritant to the mucous membrane. Everybody's always talking about ozone like, whoa, it's scary. It's mm-hmm. scary. It's an it's an aggressive destroyer of pathogens. It only needs right. contact time of a few seconds to actually kill a pathogen, but it also helps purify. So they built these large, really mm. are tubes that go on the ceiling that turn over high volumes of air and clean the air on a 24-7 basis with built-in monitoring systems to keep the level of ozone at a very safe level. Because mm-hmm. that depends on the load. If the load of pollution in the air gets high, then the ozone system cranks up to destroy what they're measuring is the particulate matter. And then mm. once it cranks, they get down, they're measuring it in all real time, 24-7. So it's never exposing the workers to high levels of ozone. It's just cleaning the air. And it just makes me think that that would be a great solution for the, or at least a yeah. helpful in the meat processing plant. Where is that being used? Um, I'll have to find out and email you because I just can't remember at this moment. That I'll send you a picture fantastic. of where it's It installed. would be so interesting if there was a meat processing plant somewhere who was doing that and who didn't have a COVID-19 outbreak. That would be fantastic. I mean, it'd be that would be amazing. Gun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. really interesting because as, ozone as is we, a really good way to kill glyphosate, break it down, right. we, non-enzymatically. We talked about that backstage, and I was like, I didn't know it broke down glyphosate. That's <laughs> stunning. It's fortunate because I think that's why the water isn't nearly as contaminated as it would otherwise be, our drinking water, because usually they use ozone and chlorine and those things break down glyphosate in the water treatment process. A lot of systems, particularly uh, the bathing water systems are designed, well, actually drinking water systems as well, 
LA for years was the largest drinking water system. It was ozone primary disinfectant in the world. Mm-hmm. Then China was the next one. Uh, mm-hmm. And with with these systems, you use ozone as the primary because it mm-hmm. destroys, kills pathogens on contact very fast. Chlorine needs a contact time of about 30 minutes. Ozone needs a contact mm-hmm. time of about five minutes. That just means mixed with the object. And then, uh, so they, they purify it that way. And then they use the, because ozone has a half-life of five minutes, breaks down every five minutes by 50%. You need a residual chemical. So with those systems, like the LA system, they were able to reduce their chlorine usage mm-hmm. because the chlorine lasts longer. So the water is still right. purified all the way through to the delivery of the tap. But it was allowed them to use much lower levels of chlorine because they didn't have to have the total load to kill everything. And it's, it's, it's a really efficient way of cleaning water. In Europe, the bathing waters are all ozone primary disinfection because they want really clean. They understand mm-hmm. the function of soaking in hot water as a healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So they don't want other <laughs> right. spooky stuff in there. So ozone is always a favorite thing in Europe. That's really that's interesting. I think that's really a great way to do it, to use the ozone first and hit harder the ozone and then come come back with the chlorine at a lower level. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's awesome. And it's really fortunate that we do have these systems. I, it's been fascinating for me to read about sewer because it's really kind of an interesting story over time because what happened was uh, we used to just dump it into the ocean, you know, the, the waste, yeah. uh, human waste dump it into the ocean. And then we started to see problems that we were killing the fish and stuff. So they, uh, they enacted laws. And I think those laws were back. I don't know if you know, I think it's like 1980s or something, or maybe before that even that they started worrying about before that. Yeah. Yeah. They started worrying about this and saying, we can't do that anymore. We have to do something else. And then of course they started realizing they were, and that's why they start processing it and try to break it down and then turn it into maybe something like, a fertilizer, you know, try to take this waste and convert it into something you could use, use for something else, right? That's always what you want to do is to find a way to use your waste. And that's actually, I mean, that's what biology does. Biology sort of does a lot of using, reusing, figuring out how to turn waste into something useful so there's less waste. And so the whole biological ecosystem works really well because the, the manure, you know, fertilizes the, the crop, right? If you just have the cows living on the grass, the grass gets fertilized by the manure and everything is a nice cycle. Um, we don't have that worked out so well, so we end up with toxic waste from from things that uh, are concentrated um, waste from from living. And so we need to figure out how to do that. And of course, methane gas, if you start to use like an anaerobic digester and let the methane gas just escape, that's a much worse greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. It's like 60 times as bad. So you don't want to waste the methane. You want to capture it and you want to use it. And if you can capture it, you can use it for fuel. So what stops like about that? It's all great, except that if you're going to put poisons on your food, it's going to end up in your gas, and it's going to poison you, you know? Yeah. I see. I drive by a large open dump in Northern California, and it also happens to be an unlined dump, which is a whole other rant I could get into, but it's an unlined mm-hmm. dump near a river in Northern California that drains out mm. to San Francisco Bay. And when I drive by, they have these giants, what look to people that don't know what they're seeing, giant smokestacks. And what they are mm-hmm. is they're where the methane is going. Exactly. It's coming out of directly out of the dump. It just goes right up to these pipes, just up into the sky, like, oh, we're just dumping. And I and because it's invisible or it's not, yeah. it's clear. You can see the waviness in the lines like you do over a hot desert road. But people don't know that that's just tons of methane dumped into the air every day. And it just yeah. blows my mind into a, in a bad way. Well, of course, yeah. if you capture it, then you're going to capture the poison, too. So. 
you're sort of stuck. As long as you're going to put glyphosate over everything, then you're just stuck, you know? It's going to come back and bite you. (laughs) (laughs) Bite you on one end or the other. (laughs) Right, exactly, yeah. Um, Let's talk about, I've heard or read you use the term COVID hotspots. Could you paint Mm -hmm. that picture out a little bit more? Yeah, well, like I said, first of all, if you look at the country level, the United States, Brazil, South Africa, most of Europe, those are all uh, places that are also um, heavy users of glyphosate and heavy into uh, advanced, heavily advanced in the biofuel uh, industry. Um, and then within the United States, you have hot spots that are uh, really are the places where we got hit hard first. New Orleans, New York City, uh, Boston got hit pretty hard. Um, even uh, cities on on the uh, Great Lakes, you know, that, like Chicago and uh, I think Milwaukee. I think it was Milwaukee. I'm forgetting exactly. But you look, when you look at the cities, Seattle is one. They're all at the mouth of a major waterway, and they're all places where they do a lot of mm-hmm. – um, they have a big uh, container port. You know, they're doing a lot of uh, shipping things out to the world from places that are coming from inside the country. And, of course, the Mississippi River is, is so toxic. I mean, that it just brings the water from all those crops that are being sprayed with glyphosate and all kinds of other stuff uh, down that river. That river has got lots of nitrogen oxides in it. And, um, of course, there's a cancer lane right along the side of the river. New Orleans has very high rates of cancer. and New Orleans is, has just been hit hard and long. I mean, it's just really struggling with COVID-19. And it, as I said, New York City and New, York, New Orleans were in Washington, D.C., actually. Those three were the first uh, major leaders in the biofuel. The concept of, of at the city level using the biofuels to fuel the city vehicles. For example, New York City had something like 11,000 buses on the road that were using um, uh, bio, biodiesel as part of their uh, fuel. You know, so New York City is the only city I know of that has a law that you have to use 5% bio. If you use home heating oil, it has to be 5% law, uh, bio by law in New York City. New York City State gives you a tax break if you use more than 5% um, diesel, uh, biodiesel, you get a tax break. So New York has been a leader, uh, understandably, because they've got that the Hudson River. They've got crops up there in upper state New York. They've kind of got a good setup for and they've got that massive sewer system, which was, you know, that is an amazing place. Which it's 50 acres right along wow. the edge of this uh, Newtown Creek, which is probably one of the most polluted creeks in the world. It has all kinds of pollution in it from many years of being right in the center of New York City. You know, that's, that separates uh, Brooklyn from Queens. And Brooklyn and Queens have just had been killed by COVID-19. And um, they also have... In, in the areas around that treatment plant, they have a 25% higher rate of all kinds of different lung diseases like COPD and, and asthma, and, um, bronchitis, these sort of lung problems are 25% higher in the area around that Newtown, around that, that um, waste processing out, uh, system, uh, that 25% higher than the rest of New York. So even compared to the, the city where people are all breathing the same essentially the same air, but it's coming more toxic around that, that plant. I mean, it's a huge problem that if we're going to expose ourselves to poisons, then we're going to end up with waste that's toxic, and we're going to have a problem figuring out how to get rid of that. And in your research, have you run across anything, a way of filtering out? Let's say we continue to produce methane, which I think is a I think the idea of methane is great, producing, mm-hmm, taking these fuels and producing, you know, when I see the giant plastic bags with the cow poop in it out of the fields, and I know that they're producing fuel of that, but it's also all organic except for the byproduct of overspray and that. It's all pure product. It's not polluted in any way. And I know. If we, yeah. 
Go ahead. Is there is there anything that you've run across that we could filter out the glyphosate? Is there a molecular sieve or some kind of and molecular sieve is a real phrase. I'm not actually making that up. I'm not telling you. I'm telling the audience. That's a real <laughs> thing. Um, is molecular sieve? Is there something that you think could be added to the system so we could strip the meth the glyphosate back out? I know the ultimate solution is not to have it in there. To begin with. No, I know, but that's a good point. If you could find a, a good way to remove the glyphosate, and certainly people are, people should be working in that space to try to figure out how to remove it. I, I mentioned already the ozone, and there's also chlorine, and then chlorine dioxide also. Those three are the three that I'm aware of, uh, oxidizing agents that break it down non-enzymatically. There are also some microbes that can break it down, and these anaerobic digesters are based on microbes. So one hope would be... <laughs> And you could certainly encourage that hope by actually adding it would be to have microbes in there that can break down glyphosate because there aren't many. Most of the microbes get stumped by it. It has a, a unique carbon phosphorus bond that, that a lot of microbes don't know what to do with. So they leave it alone and don't break it down. But there are a few that can. And what I'm, I'm aware of, um, I'm aware of at least two, Acetobacter and um, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Pseudomonas is interesting because that's become an epidemic, uh, in prob- big problem in the hospitals. Uh, because it's become uh, multiple antibiotic resistant and it can cause some really nasty infections that can kill you. People get pick it up in the hospital and die from it when they come in for a routine operation sometimes. And uh, I think it may be having a tremendous benefit over other microbes because of its ability to break down glyphosate. It doesn't get, it does it just eats it up. It doesn't get harmed by glyphosate the way the other ones do. So glyphosate really is a antibiotic and it kills um, a lot of the beneficial microbes allowing pseudomonas to get a, a foothold in your body, and then you end up with a pseudomonas infection, um, nasty symptoms, and then you, um, you, you can't, you know, the, it doesn't respond to the antibiotics. You can end up dying. Uh, it can break down the glyphosate. So I also think that if you have huh. pseudomonas in your body at some level, it's maybe more beneficial than harm if you can keep it in control because it can help you to clear your glyphosate in your body. And then acetobacter is really interesting because they're found in um, – fermented foods, and I've been arguing that it's mm-hmm. essentially the case that sauerkraut and apple cider vinegar, that there could be microbes in there, because acetobacter is one is a major microbe in those fermented foods. And so um, whether they use acetobacter in these anaerobic digesters, I don't know. I mean, it's a, you know, everything's question mark right now. I don't have data. That's the one thing. It's all theory, you know. I need data, so we need some people to do some studies to figure out uh, if and where it's present in um, in the whole stages of producing biofuel. I'll have to ask. I, I have uh, there's a company in California called Bloom Distillation, B L O O M Distillation, and his idea is producing uh, biofuels using digesters, like you're talking mm-hmm. about. But I because I know that he's a permaculture organic farmer to, by mm-hmm. foundation, and he's taught permaculture for decades that everything that he's looked at in terms of on his own farm, he produces methane that he's, mm-hmm. he's been running his truck for 15 years on pure alcohol. That's amazing. And that kind of thing. But it's all been organic because he's the person yeah. producing the product that he's turning into fuel, but he's now designing systems for other part of the world. And I'll talk with him and somebody else that I know that works with digestive enzymes, food based formulas and see if we can get those two worlds together because one of I know David's, that would be fantastic. One of David really Bloom's, would be great if you can. It would be awesome to be able to put the bacteria into the digester that would break down the glyphosate, exactly. so we could still produce those fuels because I think they're very cool. 
they are, and it's such a great solution. Of course, we have an issue with global climate change, and it would be great to be able to have a, such a beautiful solution that we uh, use our own ways to produce fuel. It's, it's really beautiful. Well, and he also has the vision, uh, David Bloom also has the vision of taking over uh, defunct oil rigs and mm-hmm. building armatures on the oil rigs that you would grow seaweed on. And then you would oh harvest that sea, and then you would have to harvest that seaweed and have the digesters right on the platform, and you'd That's produce cool. that. You'd break down that seaweed into fuel, and if you added this, these bacteria into that, you'd be desiring other possible glyphosate that's now in our waters, in our oceans. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you'd break that down, and you'd have a clean fuel, and then the byproduct that you end up with is a slurry of the other micronutrients that are in kelp that you could then use either for fertilizer or something else. And if we could add something to that that got rid of the glyphosate, that would be like, wow, that'd be awesome. That would be really, really amazing. <laughs> and of course, the other thing I think of is if, for example, for some reason, the world wakes up and realizes this stuff is too toxic, we've got to get rid of it, and we ban it. Now we have all this glyphosate that's left over that we haven't used, right? And it's right. poison. We know it's poison. What are we going to do with it? Well, if we could throw it to some microbe and break it down, that would be great, you know? It'd be so great. Other than we backstage, we were talking about a bit. Uh, I grew up near ag country and was dusted regularly because it was fun to stick your head out of the out of the car and be dusted by the crop dusters in the Salinas Valley. Oh, no. So I was repeatedly <laughs> dusted by DDT unknowingly. So wow. you know, DDT just sort of like was sent to other third world countries. You know, we just know. didn't talk about it. It was like sent to you know other places. And it'd be as you say, it'd be really a wonderful solution to say, okay, it's banned, and here's how we destroy it. That'd exactly. Be, give it to me and I'll take care of it. And then you give it to these so anaerobic great. digesters and they disappear. Yes. yes. Oh, <laughs> I love gonna this. Need to undo right. it. I mean, at some point we got to get rid of this stuff. We've got tons of it just sitting there right now, ready to go, right. To be used on all these farms. I just wish we could um, clean the wor- world. I'm so, um, I'm really terrified of the future because we we're so sick and this country really is representative. We have a, by far the highest healthcare cost of any country in the world. And, you know, so many people, obese and diabetes and Alzheimer's is going up dramatically, exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage and all this stuff. And um, our country, our government is completely clueless. They think glyphosate is perfectly fine. They don't even measure it. It's all over the food supply and they don't care. They don't measure it. They don't think it's a problem. We're in an incredible situation right now that is going to, I think, destroy the country if we keep it up. I just think we have to wake up and realize this is happening or we're going to be toast, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not laughing at what you're saying. It's the term of we could be toast. No, no, we could be the toast. Not kind of. We could actually be the toast byproduct of what's going on. <clears throat> and and let's move sort of sideways. Or it's still it's still part of the you know amazing world of glyphosate. Um, there needs to be a Disney ride. I remember as a kid going on the Monsanto ride as a kid. at Disney World and it was like a very like wow Monsanto World and it was an amazing ride but it still is in my brain like really that was a ride at Disneyland wow (laughs) Um, talk to us about is it glycine is that correct am I getting that right that glyphosate makes a mess of because I mean that's a oh please it's amazing and this is what I believe and I'm having a a really difficult time getting this message across because I'm getting a lot of pushback. I will be honest with you. Um, I'm pretty confident that I'm right at this point. The more I look, the more confident I get because it's how you explain all these diseases that are going up dramatically. 
and people say correlation doesn't mean causation. You've got, you know, these diseases, multiple diseases are matching with glyphosate in the United States with 0.0000. I mean, it's like five or six zeros before the first significant digit of p-value, which means that it's incredibly, incredibly unlikely that this particular coincidence could have been a coincidence, you know, this, this, this correspondence between the rise in this disease and the rise in the use of glyphosate over and over again, multiple diseases, including things like pancreatic cancer and thyroid cancer and autism and Alzheimer's and uh, all kinds of, you know, gut issues, inflammatory bowel disease and celiac disease, you know, the gluten intolerance problem and, uh, and diabetes, obesity, heart disease. I mean, all these things, just the rise in, 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 uh, serum LDL, you know, that's what gets you on a statin drug. And that it's been rising in our country in step with the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops, all of that. So how can one chemical cause so many problems? That's the big question. And that's what got my interest. I needed to understand what this molecule was doing. And it turns out glyphosate's a slow kill. And that's why they haven't connected it up. Monsanto, the, 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 ag, the ag industry made a decision way back when that you only had to look at studies for three months if you expose animals to glyphosate or to any chemical you look at them for three months, and if everything looks good, then you're good to go. And it turns out you don't see anything until you go for four months. That's what Seralini found out. And this was really the first study I read on glyphosate way back when. Um, he exposed, he did exactly, he repeated a, an experiment Monsanto had done with rats, and he exposed them to glyphosate at, at reasonably low levels and exposed them for, for three months. And they couldn't really tell the difference, difference between the treated group and the untreated group at that point. He was starting to get worried his experiment wasn't going to do anything. And then it turned out at four months, he started to see a differentiation. And by the end of their lifespan, he had, uh, you know, the, the female rats had massive mammary tumors. The male rats had obvious kidney damage, liver damage. Both uh, males and females had reproductive issues. I mean, there were all kinds of problems. And they had a shortened lifespan. So he wrote this paper. And, of course, the industry attacked him viciously, got the paper retracted, which is what they always do. And luckily, he got it republished in a different journal. Um, but he, he's been really attacked, you know, by the industry because he's showing up their product to show that it's not safe. And that was what really tipped me off to think there really is something to this. Um, this was after I had heard Don Huber speak. Professor Don Huber is, has been an advocate about the dangers of glyphosate for a long, long time. He's in his 80s now. He's amazing. He still goes around the world talking about glyphosate. I heard him speak for two hours at a conference I happened to be at. This was in 2012, I believe, and I'd hadn't, I didn't know what glyphosate was at that time, which is kind of shocking to me now, and, um, but he opened my eyes, so I heard Don Huber speak for two hours. I was like, oh, my God, this is it, because I was looking for what is the chemical that's causing the rise in autism, and um, I was struggling because I could see a lot of, I knew a lot about autism by that point, but I knew I hadn't found the answer when I walked into that lecture, and when I walked out, I felt like I had found the answer, and I still believe that. I think glyphosate... Without glyphosate, the autism epidemic would be a hell of a lot better than it is right now. Anyway, I didn't get to your topic, glycine, <laughs> which is the reason why. No, no, I um, actually I have to jump in for just a moment because it does. I mean, it is it does blow my mind the level of the elevated levels of ADD, ADHD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Period. It just blows my mind how that is like the, you know, that is one of the number one things you hear about. I mean, we hear a lot about it in schools, particularly with the pandemic and everybody trying to be homeschooling. You hear a lot of parents talking about, my, you know, that kind of thing. So it makes sense. I mean, it's, it, it does, we talked a little bit about this. It does seem to me like glyphosate is the 
last needle on the haystack of toxic load. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot like of other stuff going the on. The tipping point. Yes, yeah, there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff going on, but glyphosate is just like, okay, that's too much. I mean, this, the ability to assimilate protein, ADHD, ADD, uh, its effect yeah, on serotonin. Yeah, and all serotonin. kinds of diseases, too. Even just celiac right. disease and gluten intolerance, gaseine intolerance. Yeah. I mean, all these intolerances for foods. Yeah, suddenly but, everybody's um, intolerant to everything. Yeah. I'm intolerant <laughs> to politics, but that's a separate issue. right well the glycine thing let me just tell that or can i tell that story now please please yeah 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 but glycine is an amino acid it's the smallest amino acid and the amino acids are the building blocks of proteins and the proteins are the workhorses of the body so that's the dna code you know people hear about genetics and dna the dna sequence and dna is a four-letter code it can code for 64 different things and there's about 20 amino acids so it's a redundant code but there's three a sequence of three letters corresponds to a specific amino acid and then the proteins are assembled according to the code it's really like running a computer program and so they're assembled together um, on a line so it's like paper dolls holding hands and each paper doll is is an amino acid and glycine is one of them and glycine is a super important one because of it being so small proteins use it in strategic spots where they absolutely have to have glycine there's a lot of one thing i've done is rummage through the literature looking for proteins that have essential glycine residues that if you have a genetic mutation where that glycine becomes something else, you get very sick. And there's certainly cases where people with a single mutation in a single glycine residue in a particular protein end up not living for more than a couple of years and having a really miserable life over those two years. You know, it can really ruin you if you've got a, a defective version of an essential protein that essentially depends on a particular glycine. So that's where I come from, if, if glyphosate does substitute for glycine, uh, it will disturb many, many, many proteins in your body, pretty much most of them, but some of them more than others. And so you can actually find out which ones would be more susceptible through rules that you can develop based on studying the way glyphosate affects the plants to kill them. So there's, Monsanto has done good research where they figured out that there's a specific enzyme in the plants, EPSP synthase, which is in the pathway, biological pathway called the shikimate pathway. And that enzyme uh, gets messed up by glyphosate. They know that for a fact. And they feel like that's the main thing that happens to the plants that kills them. With that problem, almost every plant dies. It, it, you know, Almost every plant is susceptible to it, except for those that have been engineered to resist it. And the way you engineer them to resist it is to get rid of that glycine residue. You replace it with alanine. That's what they have done in these GMO crops to keep them from being sensitive to glyphosate. So they know it's the glycine at the place where the substrate binds that glyphosate is messing up. They know that that glycine is critical uh, for the protein to be susceptible to glyphosate. But they refuse to say that what glyphosate is doing is substituting for that glycine, which is what I think is happening. It's getting inserted in place of glycine when the protein is being assembled. Glyphosate is a complete glycine molecule. It matches perfectly into the spot where glycine is supposed to fit. It has extra material attached to its nitrogen atom, but the nitrogen atom has to be outside of the hole because it has to hook up with the paper dolls. So this is, this is my theory that the glycine, the assembly mechanism is getting fooled by glyphosate and it's putting glyphosate there instead of glycine. The extra material won't always fit because if you've got, if you're crowded, if your neighbors are big and bulky amino acids, glyphosate won't fit and it won't be a problem. But if you happen to be a glycine residue that's surrounded by small amino acids, there's plenty of room for the extra material that's stuck onto the nitrogen atom of glyphosate. You put that there though, you mess up the protein because it's now bulkier, it's negatively charged, 
it behaves very, very differently from glycine. And it can ruin that protein's ability to fold correctly. It can ruin its ability to do its job. You know, it can cause a lot of trouble. And how can, how does this lead to, we're jumping here, but it's really in the same exact theme. How does this lead to depletion of serotonin and a higher level of depression? Yeah, well, serotonin is actually easy because that it comes directly out of the shikimate pathway. The, um, that pathway produces the aromatic amino acids, and those uh, are essential. Those are, um, you know, amino acids that code for proteins. They're called the aromatics. There's three of them. And uh, one of them is, is tryptophan, which then gets converted into serotonin, melatonin, um, and mel- uh, not, not melanin. Another one gets converted to melanin. But those three amino acids get converted to, into all the neurotransmitters and including uh, the thyroid hormone and also the skin tanning agent melanin and also critical B vitamins like uh, uh, bio, uh, riboflavin and um, niacin. Both come out of that shikimate pathway as well. So the gut microbes normally would be producing um, these aromatics, which would then, you, you could convert them into the neurotransmitters. And serotonin is produced mostly in the gut uh, with tryptophan as the precursor. So when the tryptophan is not made because the shikimate pathway is being busted in the microbes and in the foods you're eating, they're going to be reduced as well. So you're getting a deficiency in tryptophan, which is then causing a deficiency in serotonin, which then causes depression, violent behavior, and even weight gain. All of those can come out of a serotonin deficiency. So that one can be explained without claiming that it substitutes for glycine. And of course, that alone can cause a lot of trouble. So it's conceivable that just breaking the shikimate pathway is enough to explain all of those diseases. But I I believe otherwise. Well, and just for a little bit more information for people about serotonin. Serotonin is the, in, in happy talk language, is the feel-good hormone. It's, it's created when people sit around and have conversation in a certain way, a sort of an intimate setting but, you know, where you're having non-political, regular conversation. <laughs> and Do we have you, those conversations anymore? <laughs> it can happen. It can happen. Occasionally I'm in groups where we have to raise our hand. I have to raise my hand and say, I'd like to say something. And they're like, no. No, you can't. <laughs> We're having a good time. Stop. But serotonin is that thing that we feel good when we have it. So to have that being stripped away and messed with just I leads know. to this, again, this cascade of, you know, in this time of pandemic and everything else that we have going on, we're already inclined to being immunosuppressed. And I think that mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a correlation between depression and immunosuppression that I don't hear people talk a lot about. But I really do feel that eventually depression will lead to immunosuppression because you're right. always, the body's in a shutdown state and the rest of the thing is kind of going, oh, we're depressed, we could die anyway. And I don't mean that literally, but it is kind of trends that way. I mean, serotonin yes. is really important. It's all it really is, important. Yes. And of course, serotonin deficiency also causes violent behavior. And we sort of have a very grumpy uh, population right now. Everyone's kind of, you know, fighting with each other. So it sort of feels like their mood could be controlled by their lack of certain critical hormones, uh, neuro, uh, neurotransmitters like right. serotonin. Wow. Um I want to jump slightly sideways. We're still in the glyphosate family. Boy, there's a lot of family in here. Talk to me for, please, about vaping. Mm-hmm. Thank you for bringing that up. Because Yeah, that's really interesting. Really, I already, let me, my disclaimer is I hate vaping to begin with. 
because of the waste involved in the product. It's not about what they're consuming, although you will now clarify that for us, but it's just the stunning amount of waste that is involved in the vaping industry, meaning the actual like little battery and the little glass thing and the canister and the stuff. It's just waste. Interesting. Yes, that's ahead. a good point. Now, please actually. tell us that's... why we really, the other part that's wow. Yeah, it's amazing. In fact, it's, I, I didn't, um, I was looking into this before COVID hit because I got curious about this strange new lung disease that was showing up among people who vape. And um, it, I was studying to try to understand where that might be coming from. I was suspecting glyphosate in the vaping products. And I hit gold because I saw that glycerol is a byproduct of the biofuel industry. It's a major byproduct of the biofuel industry. So when you are producing biofuels, you end up with a lot of glycerol, and it's actually glutted the market and made it very cheap. And I think that I suspect that the whole vape concept of a vaping product arose out of the need to figure out what to do with all this glycerol. And it was just like, oh, this is a way we can use glycerol and get rid of it, you know, by selling it to people and making money off of it. And um, I suspect, you know, and I haven't, again, I haven't proven that, but it, it makes sense. And the timing is right. And so the glycerol is what you're burning when you, when you smoke and when you, when you vape. And, uh, and I suspect the glycerol has glyphosate in it. And so when you vape, you're getting glyphosate into your lungs. And that glyphosate is causing this lung disease, which looks exactly like COVID-19. It's quite remarkable. It's a, a dry cough, a shortness of breath, um, a slight fever, and a, particularly the lack of a runny nose. So, you, you know, this is a characteristic feature of COVID-19 that you don't have congestion. It's a dry cough without congestion. And it's the same feature of this lung disease with vaping. And um, what was really cool is there was a paper I found there where they exposed mice to vaping fumes. They were trying to figure out what the vaping fumes were doing and, of course, which components of the vaping fumes. And they did determine, by the way, that it was still toxic without the nicotine. So it wasn't necessarily nicotine might be making things worse, but without the nicotine, it still causes um, damage to the lungs. So something else besides the nicotine was doing it. And they exposed these mice to vaping fumes for four months, and then they exposed them to the flu virus. They were suspecting that the lungs had been primed so that they would have a bad reaction to the flu, and they were right. They were able then to, to look at the lungs. They were able to study a bunch of different parameters, and they found that they had an over- reactive response. This is what we're seeing with COVID-19, a huge response of the immune system, a way overdone immune response to the virus that puts the lungs on fire, damages the lung tissues, causes you to have shortness of breath, you know, all this stuff that's happening with the people who get COVID-19. The same thing happened to these mice when they got the flu. Um, and so they had this, and so then they were even able to examine the lung tissue. And they found, this is very interesting to me, they found that the the lungs of these exposed mice were unable to produce an adequate amount of, of these proteins that are in the surfactants, the surfactant proteins that are super critical for trapping viruses. So they had a deficiency. They weren't able to release those proteins out of the cells. And um, very, very interesting to me because those proteins happen to have a long sequence in their, in their code of something called a, um, a collagen-like sequence. Collagen is the most common protein in the body. 25% of our protein is collagen. It's the joints, the bones, the skin, you know, all, it's the glue, really, that holds your body together. Beautiful molecule. It has a beautiful triple helix structure. It has very interesting properties in terms of being able to hold water, its tensile strength, you know, its flexibility. It's a beautiful protein to, to put into the main, you know, all over the body. 
and collagen has this long sequence of GXY, 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 where every third amino acid is a glycine. Tremendous opportunity for glyphosate to substitute for glycine. So I think that glyphosate gets into the lungs from the breathing, from breathing the vaping fumes, messes up that protein, gets it so it can't, it can't even be exported from the cell into the external space so it can trap the viruses. So when those proteins are deficient, uh, the viruses can't be trapped and the, and the lung can't clear them. These are the immune cells that are producing this protein. In order to, it's like to build tar paper so they can stick the viruses and catch them and clear them. And they're unable to do that. And so the viruses are able to take hold. And the other thing they saw was, was the buildup of deposits of fat inside the macrophages, the immune cells that were in the lungs, were accumulating fatty deposits in response to the flu when they had been exposed to the vaping fumes. And that's also extremely interesting because other studies have shown we have an epidemic in fatty liver disease. It's also one of the diseases that's going up exactly in step with glyphosate. And another study on rats exposed the rats to levels of glyphosate below uh, regulatory limits. And they found that it caused fatty lung disease where the immune cells in the lungs were accumulating fats, exactly like what's happening with the lungs in the liver, that fatty liver disease. The liver immune cells were accumulating fatty deposits, just like what's happening in the lungs of these mice that were exposed to the vaping fumes. So I think it's glyphosate in both cases, um, causing the immune cells to be unable to, to properly deal with lipids. So they end up just storing those fats uh, and you get the fatty liver disease or what I would call fatty lung disease in the case of the um, vaping fumes. And when I was referring to vaping, I was actually talking about the cannabis industry using mm. all these vape pens because it's very popular uh, to use vaping pens because you can have all sorts of different mixes and blends and it's so convenient and it's so easy. And yet, that my, as I say, my primary, my first gripe was that it, it's a um, stunning amount of waste is produced mm -hmm. because you have batteries and things that are one-time use and then you just throw them away. There's no recycling system of any kind. And wow. the glass and the canister. And now that to add this to that, that yes. you have people who might be using cannabis for a medicinal effect, a high level of CBD, let's say, to soothe the nervous system or reduce inflammation. And you're taking in vaping, which is causing fatty lung disease, possibly. Yeah, very scary. Really? Yeah. Oh, please. Could we all just roll a joint and give it up? Um, <laughs> I, I really, I, I don't know. It all makes me speechless. We, we almost seem like a species that's destined to try and destroy ourselves. It's the weirdest thing, the weirdest state I've been in. It's probably in my mood. I need more serotonin because I'm in the fire part of the country. I need to bump up my serotonin levels. That's for sure. Yeah. Because it is, <laughs> we all do. <laughs> it's just really mind-boggling. I, I want to toss this out. I know we're coming around the bend, but I really just have to toss this out because this was mind-blowing when I read you talking about this. I want to talk about directly about oats for a moment and oats mm -hmm. and glyphosate because so we have oats on glyphosate and now it's really popular for people who want to avoid dairy products to be drinking oat milk. Yes. Really? Right. I oh, saw that too. No. Could That's you talk really about scary. that for a moment? Could you talk about the whole oats and glyphosate as well? That it's how sprayed that yeah. is. And what's bad, of course, is you see non-GMO, you think, oh, that's great, a non-GMO product, that's a good thing to buy for my children. And it's not because it's one of the highest levels of glyphosate of all the foods that we, our kids are eating. Um, oats, like wheat and barley, is, are being sprayed routinely right before the harvest with glyphosate. 
And so it's ending up at high levels in oat-based foods. And they're finding that in t- testing oatmeal, even children's oatmeals, you know, they're coming up with high levels of glyphosate in them. So um, that's very disturbing uh, to me just because kids eat lots of oats, you know. Many kids eat oats. And so uh, they're being poisoned. By the way, there's a new study out from the, United, from the United States, which is quite interesting, where they actually had several families across the country, different parts of the country. Uh, they did an experiment where they, they, they had to find families that were not eating organic, you know, sort of have the right qualifications with young children. And they, um, they had them, they tested their urine for glyphosate, and then they fed them for one week a, a strictly organic diet. They actually provided the food and made sure that it was organic, certified organic food for one week and tested their urine again. And it was remarkable. First of all, just about everybody was contaminated. Uh, something like 96% of the samples tested positive. And, um, and the children had significantly higher levels than the parents, something like four times as much on average, which was really shocking to me. The children had more in their urine. And yeah. the... Um, and when they had the one week of organic food, the levels precipitously dropped in, in, in pretty much all cases, um, went way down. So that's actually really good news in a way, right? First of all, it shows you your food is a major source of your glyphosate exposure. And secondly, it shows you that if you just eat certified organic, you're going to greatly reduce your glyphosate load. So it's extremely good news for those of us who are eating certified organic food. You have to look for that label. I, we do that religiously when we shop for food at the grocery store. And it, I really encourage the audience to, to get into the mindset of buying certified organic foods in the shop. So, so non-GMO, which has the happy label, yes. is not giving us any guarantee that it hasn't been sprayed. It's just non-GMO. It can be higher levels because the non-GMOs oh. are sprayed right before harvest. And the chickpeas and garbanzo beans are another one that was a surprise to me. Very, very high levels of glyphosate in, um, for example, hummus, you know, super healthy food, except for the glyphosate poison that you're getting when you eat it. And there's your closing line. Mic drop. <laughs> except for those higher levels of glyphosate, the, the hummus is wonderful nutritive. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, as always, we're at that moment. I'm surprised we got here so soon where we have to stop because there's so many things. Oh man, it's all mind blowing. I mean, it really is. I'm so happy to talk with you because it just adds to the pile of like, really? Wow. (laughs) Um, But I think it's really, it's great information for people to have and to think and to begin to look at. And especially this very last thing that you talked about here was just one week of organic foods. And their your glyphosate levels go down, so it shows us a demonstration of it can actually be reduced greatly in less than a, in a week. That's a that's right. a wonderful thing to know, just by yes, eating a, a certified organic diet, which yes. is a little harder. You know, maybe you need to go to your farmers markets, which I'm always a fan of seeing the hands that grew my food. Uh, I really like that, uh, so I think that's a great way to go. Um, okay, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. thank you for having me it was my pleasure that was great and I put the uh, you have a Facebook page which people can go to and follow but your website is just the one at MIT so that's not really very helpful is it I mean that well I have a lot of stuff I actually post a lot of my um, a lot of material on glyphosate there Okay, so that I'll is, put that um, link in the show notes. I'll put that link in the show notes because I know it's good. not something very friendly for you to say. It's a long thing. I'll just put that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, right. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Stephanie. That was great. 
And Thank everybody you, else Atlas. have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.